From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. State lawmakers are back in the Capitol after a month-long pause. We'll talk about priorities in the face of the pandemic. Obviously, this pandemic and the downturn have had really disparate impacts on different industries, on different communities. People have asked, where is our legislature? Why aren't our legislators doing things immediately? Or why did they make these decisions? Healthcare costs, the unemployment system, taxes, transportation. Can state lawmakers find common ground? Then, the state judicial department is being rocked by allegations of sexual misconduct and discrimination and cover-up. That's a claim the judicial department denies. Plus, a new national landmark near Steamboat Springs, but probably not one you'll be able to explore. The air inside Sulphur Cave is lethal, at least to humans. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Boulder, Pilots Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. These recent months have been tough for everyone, but month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The Colorado General Assembly reconvenes for the 2021 regular session today. Lawmakers are expected to tackle a lot of issues facing the state, including how to allocate the state budget of $48.4 billion. Democrats have control of both houses and the governorship. House Speaker Alec Garnett and Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert join me to talk about legislative priorities. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us, Avery. Yep. Great to be here. Speaker Garnett, what are the biggest priorities for the Democrats going into this session? This is really like no other session that the General Assembly has ever faced before. Obviously, everyone who's listening right now has had a really challenging year uh, balancing the the COVID pandemic with the economic downturn. Uh, These have really been tough times. I think you're going to see Democrats and Republicans coming back into session focused on how to make Colorado recover faster, and how do we build back stronger uh, than where we found ourselves? Obviously, this pandemic and the downturn have had really uh, disparate impacts on different industries, on different regions of the state, on different communities. So we're going to come in very focused on using one-time dollars to get uh, relief out to the people and to the businesses that need it most so that we can bounce back and, uh, and really get out of this uh, pandemic in as strong way as possible. So we're going to go back to that in a moment. First, Senator Holbert, what about the Republicans' biggest priorities this year? Well, over the past 11 months, the people of Colorado have been reminded that uh, they decided in 1988 to convert their full-time year-round legislature into a part-time citizen legislature. There have been people who have asked or demanded that I or we take immediate action on on many, many fronts. They've asked questions of why we decided that uh, restaurants could be open at certain capacity levels or hair salons could open at 50% of their posted occupancy or 10 people, whichever was less. And the answer is your legislators didn't do those things. And this isn't to point fingers at Governor Polis or his administration, but the past 11 months is my first experience in a long-term prolonged statewide disaster emergency it happened to be over a pandemic, 
But people have asked, where is our legislature? Why aren't our legislators doing things uh, immediately? Or why did they make these decisions? And the answer is uh, the people in 1988 decided to make our legislature a part-time, four-month-a-year responsibility. And the other eight months a year, Speaker Garnett and I, we don't have any power. We're the only 100 elected officials in Colorado that uh, that applies to. But why that relates to coming back to session, we're going to have a conversation and I'm confident that we'll be able to engage on this with folks in the majority, the Democrats. But given our experiences over the past 11 months, should the legislature be brought back in, uh, you know, 30 days, 90 days, six months, once a year, if we're not there, and should we have any oversight of all of the executive orders? We do a rule review bill every year when executive branch agencies make rules. We look at those rules and determine whether they're within statute or not. Would we have any role on that in over 300 executive orders? Um, should the legislature be called back during that eight-month interim during a prolonged disaster emergency? Should there be some constitutional requirement that we come back so that there's at least two branches of government discussing these things. To be clear, are you objecting to any of the specific executive orders that you think the legislature would have or should have handled differently if it had been in session? No, it has nothing to do with this conversation. Uh, We would not be looking to interfere with the governor in this current pandemic, this current disaster emergency. Right now, under our current statute and constitution, the governor can continue this statewide disaster emergency 30 days at a time indefinitely. So is that the right scenario for the next time this happens? Because again, people across the political spectrum have asked, where's the legislature? And I I think that moving from part-time to a full-time year-round legislature, I don't think the citizens are prepared for that. But given a, a prolonged time period, 90 days, six months, a year, something Should there be some constitutional trigger to say, let's have both branches of government involved in making these decisions for our state? And it's hard to fathom, but it has been nearly a year since Colorado's first COVID-19 case. The pandemic continues. The state has $1.5 billion set aside for one-time spending on pandemic relief. Speaker Garnett, you alluded to this earlier. How do lawmakers plan to spend that money? To Senator Holbert's point just there, You know, I'm certainly very supportive of what we've seen the governor do. The governor didn't run to tackle this type of pandemic. I think he's really stepped up and he's really uh, worked around the clock on behalf of Coloradans. Uh, And if we want to have a discussion about equal branches of government, I think we can. I just don't think in the middle of this, that's the discussion we should be having. What I'm hearing from people across the state isn't necessarily what's going on with the executive orders. It is how are you going to help us bounce back? Whether or not you know my small business is suffering, my uh, I lost my job, I need help, you know, making ends meet and putting food on the table, and my kids are are, are home with me. There, these are the challenges that I keep hearing from people across the state. And I think what we need to do with these one-time dollars now. The number you just cited, Avery, was the number that was put in the governor's budget. I think we're going to work together, uh, Democrats and Republicans, with the Joint Budget Committee and with the governor's office to figure out what the right number is going to be. But those are going to go towards uh, shovel-ready projects that can create jobs that are ready to go, ways that we can help the workforce that's been laid off who are struggling to find the next job to 
to, again, put food on the table. We're going to think through ways that we can get dollars quickly into the economy that are stimulative, that have a multiplying of effect across uh, different sectors so that uh, people can really feel it. We can use the tax code, too, to help small businesses hire back employees faster to you know, relieve some pressure on workers' wages. There's a lot of things that we can do, a lot of dials that we can uh, move dollars into quickly. And I think that's what you'll see the legislature doing as early as next week. Will some of this money include making sure schools are safe enough to reopen in person? Yeah, you know, in the last HEROES Act, about $400 million are coming down from the feds to go out to the 178 school districts so that uh, they have uh, money for cleaning supplies, for doing everything they need to do infrastructure-wise to open up safely. So there's a lot of federal money coming in. I think the goal for the legislature is how do we use more precious state dollars and move them into places where the federal dollars aren't coming in. I think there's no doubt that we want to get our kiddos back in school. I have two little kiddos, and I know how much stress parents have been feeling. You know, I think in the next uh, three weeks or so, almost all teachers across the state are going to have vaccines in their arms, which are which is really, really important. So we're, it sounds to me like we're kind of working on a state level and on a federal level to do everything we can to get those schools open and those kiddos back in school. CPR reporter Andy Kenny has been reporting about flaws to the state's unemployment system. Thousands of people have been experiencing delays in state unemployment benefits and even worse frustrations in the state's crackdown on fraud. Speaker Garnett, does the General Assembly plan to address these issues? And if it does, how? I've certainly heard from a lot of constituents who have had a lot of trouble uh, with the unemployment system. It's We've been working around the clock in constituent services addressing one after another after another. We are talking to the governor's office. We are trying to figure out ways to address it. It is a very high priority. Last year, Democrats in the General Assembly planned to tackle the public health care option before the pandemic hit. This year, they plan to bring forward a similar proposal. What would this do and why is it important? Yeah, well, you know, one thing that is clear is that while the pandemic has raged across the state, Uh, There are some problems that continue to exist. And one of those problems is that families that have been really hard hit by this recession, their healthcare costs continue to go up. And I think what we need to do is is really come together uh, as the Colorado legislature and say, what can we continue to do? What can we build off of the work that we've done in the last few sessions to really focus on saving people money on healthcare? And I think there's really two areas we can do that. The first area is uh, people are paying way too much for their pharmaceutical drugs. How can we make sure that you know people don't have to ration those? How how can we make sure that people aren't putting you know their uh, their health at risk uh, just because their pharmaceutical drugs are too expensive? So what can we do about that? And then the second thing is uh, really tackling the bigger systematic issue, which is premiums continue to go up for small businesses and for individuals in the marketplace. Are there ways that we can bring that the healthcare Uh, industry to the table and say, let's reduce costs, let's contain costs so we don't see these increases year over year. I think that's a discussion that you'll see the legislature have this year. Senator Holbert, Republicans pushed back against this proposal last year. Why did they object? Well, having government limit options and control price in in the private sector isn't going to make health insurance less expensive for everyone. What it does is redistribute the cost of health insurance. So some people may see a moderate decrease in what they pay, while others see 
the increase, the proportional increase. Having government more involved in what your doctor can or can't do, what he or she can or can't charge, doesn't make it more affordable. It makes it more expensive. If we want to lower the cost of health insurance, get government out of that, not more into it. What alternatives does the Republican Party offer? Exactly that. Let's get government out of health insurance and health care. Let's let health insurance compete with each other, maybe sell policies across state lines and forcing them to have a, a different product in each state. In the past, when there's been less government involvement, people with pre-existing conditions have been unable to get insurance or have had to pay very high premiums. Do you worry people would fall through the cracks in that system you're championing, getting government out of health care? I believe there's a federal requirement on pre-existing conditions, and we're talking about state legislation, so I don't conflate the two. So when you say you want to get government out of health care, you specifically mean state government? Yes. Well, I think to that last point, you know, the people that have sent, you know, me to the Capitol and have sent so many of my colleagues to the Capitol, the number one thing they are talking to us about is how expensive their healthcare costs are and how much they see those costs going up and up and up. And so I don't blame that on government getting involved. I just think the status quo isn't working. And, they're, and they send us down to the gold dome to try to solve these problems. And I think that's what you're going to see us try to do. We're we're, we're sent there to try to solve these problems. And, and you're going to see the Democratic caucus coming together, having the discussions, working with all the stakeholders, including the Colorado Hospital Association, on ways to move forward. I think the proposal that you will see that's sort of being stakeholder right now with a lot of people are ideas that came through the stakeholding process from last year. And that just shows that everyone coming to the table and trying to solve this problem Uh, Hopefully we get to a place where obviously not everyone's in support, but that everyone feels like they're putting a little bit of skin in the game to help solve a big problem for the people of Colorado. Moving on to the Colorado Department of Transportation, it's facing a revenue shortfall from the gas tax because people have been driving less during the pandemic. Some Democrats propose adding a fee to deliveries from services like DoorDash and Grubhub and even Amazon. Is this something the General Assembly should consider? You know, transportation funding is an issue that I know uh, Minority Leader Holbert cares a lot about. I certainly care a lot about. We have been trying to solve this problem for decades in the state of Colorado. We have fallen so far behind other states, and our economic competitiveness has really been impacted by our lack of problem solving on this issue. We really are the the 10th lowest state among all 50 when it comes to generating revenue for transportation. And I think what you're going to see is people coming together to try to take advantage of the changes that we have seen in how people are using our roads and and how consumers are using the roads. And so you're going to see ideas coming around about, for example, I have diapers delivered to my house. I'm having groceries delivered to my house. How can we make sure that the way that the market is shifting uh, is reflected in in how we're generating revenue for transportation infrastructure across the state. So I think you're going to see us all coming together to have that conversation. It's going to be under the gold dome, which is different than other packages we've seen in the past. But this should be a this should be a bipartisan issue. This isn't a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. We got to come together. We got to sit down. We got to figure this out because our economic competitiveness and all the time that people spend in congestion that is going to inevitably come back post-pandemic, everyone 
they expect us to do this. And I think this year is the year that we can do it. Do you worry that a fee like this could place undue burden on people who rely on delivery services like grocery deliveries because they're at high risk for COVID-19? Yeah. So one, we're not talking uh, about tax increasing anyone's taxes. Uh, We're talking about uh, making sure that we're utilizing uh, that people are charging, fee- being charged fees for the way that they use our roads. I mean, this is something, you know, whether or not it's Amazon or whether or not it's Grubhub, these are uh, market shifts. This is this is behavioral shifts. And, you know, we're not trying to, we're not talking about huge increases by any means. It's more about the volume and the number of trips that we're seeing. That's where I think you'll see this small fee going towards. I think there's a lot of agreement that makes sense. That's what almost every other state is doing. They're looking at how, uh, who and how their roads are being used uh, to generate the revenue to then to fix the transportation infrastructure moving forward. Senator Holbert, what do you think about this proposal and what are some of the other suggestions from the Republican Party for um, remedies to the declining revenues to CDOT? The people of Colorado have not had the opportunity to vote on the critical question of raising gas tax in decades. They've been asked all sorts of different questions and they've said no. But I hear even from conservative constituents who ask, why haven't they been given the opportunity to vote on the specific question of raising gas tax? Now, gas tax isn't a long-term solution because you identified earlier people are driving hybrids and electrics more or not driving. But rather than asking the people of Colorado under the taxpayer's bill of rights, if they would approve a an increase in gas tax, what's being proposed is that apparently Democrats are looking for bipartisan support to create fees to make things like DoorDash cost more or Lyft cost more or Uber cost more. And uh, you won't be asked to vote on those things because the majority party in both chambers apparently are going to make those decisions for you. Will this fund our roads and bridges better? I doubt that, but we certainly will see the fees applied, new fees, higher fees, and uh, services like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash will suddenly cost more. And uh, that we're 100% sure to do, but that will happen without my support. Some Republicans have suggested that it would be better to overhaul the budget. Senator Holbert, can you tell me more about what you think would be a good remedy? We think that if we want to have more money for for transportation, that CDOT should do a better job with the money that it already receives. I've been in the center of negotiating more money for roads and bridges. That goes into, generally goes into HUTF, the Highway Users Tax Fund, which is not part of the state budget. CDOT uh, controls a portion of that. Counties decide how a lot of that money is spent, not the legislature. So if we want to put more money into that, we would propose using general fund dollars or, again, if someone really wanted to go out and ask the voters to approve a tax increase, then, again, I've heard from people across the political spectrum that they're frustrated that we haven't raised the gas tax in decades and they haven't been given the opportunity to do that. And I just appeal to people out there in Colorado Understand that Colorado is a local control state. The last time the legislature voted to approve a specific road or bridge occurred in the year 1899. And if you want to know who's in control of the roads and bridges, either improving them or building new in your communities, look to your county commissioners, your town or city council members. 
but they're not going to have a say on the Democrats' proposal to create new fees and raise, raise the, uh, the rate of fees so that services, again, like Uber and Dash will cost more. I, I think it's really important that we, we take a moment to talk about what Senator Holbert just said. Right. First of all, there are Republican uh, county commissioners, Republican elected officials across the state who are demanding that the state legislature step up and get something done when it comes to transportation funding this year. This is just another example of where when a big problem faces the state of Colorado and we want to come together and try to figure out and ask tough questions on how to solve it, that the Republican Party should be right there with us. Uh, the, the seats are open. I want to have those conversations. It should be a bipartisan conversation. This is not a Democrat or a Republican problem. This is a problem that's facing Colorado. But the idea that we can somehow solve and fill that $9 billion gap by looking at how CDOT uses the revenue that they have now is not actually a solution. And I just I get frustrated because people are sick of the partisanship. People are sick of elected leaders not stepping up and really tackling the issues that are facing uh, Colorado. They don't want to hear the partisan bickering on either side. They just want to see us coming together to solve the problems. And people are also sick of elected officials going around their taxpayer bill of rights. So let's do it right. Speaker Garnett, last summer was one of racial reckoning for much of the country, including Colorado, particularly after the death of Elijah McClain in Aurora. In response, the General Assembly passed a police reform bill that required body cameras and banned the use of chokeholds and other shows of force. What is the next step to consider? Yeah, thanks, Avery. I'm really proud of uh, the Colorado legislature and the work that we did last year in response to the protests of and, and the voices of Coloradans really rising up to demand change. I want to tip my hat to both Democrats and Republicans for coming together to pass Senate Bill 217. I think that we got to make sure that anything that we can do on the state level to provide resources to the local communities, law enforcement agencies to purchase those body cameras, let's step up, let's do that. Let's work together to help close that gap. Let's like let's make sure that everything that we uh, put in 217 is working. If there's any tune-ups that we need to do, that's what the legislative process is all about. I'm also uh, digging in on and working with law enforcement agencies and with advocates on on how police-involved uses of force investigations are done. Let's make sure that that process is fine-tuned. Let's make sure that. Uh, The use of ketamine, for example, is something that seems appropriate in relation to Elijah McClain. I mean, that I think that really has come out. So you're going to see Democrats and Republicans continue to have these discussions. We shouldn't stop just because we got uh, Senate Bill 217 across the finish line. There's a lot of work for us to do, but it was a great moment of bipartisanship. And it's important to highlight that. Senator Holbert. When you hear Speaker Garnett talking about possible future steps, are those things that you might support? Or do you feel like enough has been done with 217? Uh, I'm happy to look at uh, what proposals might come in the future, but I think they would be minor corrections, not significant change. Thank you both so much for your time. Thanks so much for having us on, Avery. You're welcome. Thank you. State House Majority Leader Democrat Alec Garnett and State Senate Minority Leader Republican Chris Holbert. Lawmakers return to the state capitol today for the legislative session. Tomorrow, Governor Jared Polis delivers his State of the State address here at live at 11 a.m. on CPR News. This is Colorado Matters.
Turn the page with Colorado Matters. Read a book with us, then meet the author. This time, Other People's Pets by Boulder novelist R.L. Mazes. I thought readers might really enjoy a character who can see the world almost through the eyes of animals. Join Colorado Matters Saturday, February 27th to meet the author. Sponsored by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. Tickets at cpr.org slash turn the page. The state judicial department is being rocked by allegations of sexual misconduct and discrimination dating back years and by claims that a former employee was given a $2.5 million contract in exchange for her silence. That's a claim the judicial department denies. Last week, the state Supreme Court released a key memo in the case and promised to hire an independent investigator. The state auditor is also investigating. Denver Post reporter David Magoya's recent reporting has helped prompt the investigation. Dave, welcome. Hi, Avery. Thank you. So give me a sense of the scope here. What are some of the claims being made in this memo about the behavior at the state judicial department? The memo was drafted by the former human resources director at the time, Eric Brown. And that was at the request of the state court administrator, uh, Chris Ryan, who held the highest non-judicial position, administrative position in our court system second only to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. This memo by Mr. Brown laid out details that the former chief of staff in the department was um, threatening to make public in a sex discrimination lawsuit if they continued the process to fire her for some financial irregularities that uh, had been discovered. And we're gonna get into those layers in just a moment, but tell me what was in the memo itself. What were some of the allegations? The memo lays out uh, a number of different uh, elements of misconduct that m- mis- uh, this chief of staff had handled and that nothing came from uh, in that it was just set aside, including uh, a sitting chief justice of the Supreme Court, which one we don't know, uh, had told her to destroy a letter that was alleging uh, sexual harassment uh, against the justice. Uh, there were allegations of probation department uh, officials, which is another part of the court system, uh, a number of uh, sexual harassment um, claims and sexual related things that were not disciplined and should have been. There was a uh, a settlement given to a law clerk within the Court of Appeals who had accused a sitting Court of Appeals judge of sexual harassment. And the settlement was given to this law clerk in order to um, keep that sitting appellate court judge safe for uh, selection onto the Supreme Court for an appointment. Um, The the allegations are far, there was about 27 different things that uh, were pointed out. And there was also the revelation for the first time that this chief of staff had secretly tape recorded the chief justice at the time, Nancy Rice, Uh, in a meeting she had with her uh, in which she told her about rampant sexism that was uh, had permeated and existed quite broadly in the judicial department. So these are far reaching allegations that implicate quite a few people. Let's dig into the layers of the story. That memo that came out on February 8th is one of the pieces at the center, and we'll come back to it. But back in 2019, you started investigating a $2.5 million contract the department awarded to a woman named Mindy Macias. She's important here. Who is she? Mindy Macias is a 
a 20 plus year employee of the judicial department. She had been its uh, director of human resources. And then she was named to a newly created position at the time uh, to chief of staff of of the state court administrator's office. And in that position, Mindy would have been uh, responsible for dealing with many allegations of misconduct by employees, by judges, by any anybody employed within judicial. So as chief of staff, she, she had quite a bit of reach, quite a bit of knowledge, quite a bit of authority. And she left the department in 2019. And in the months leading up to her departure, Macias ran into some trouble. This is where another person central to the story, Chris Ryan, comes in. What did he find? Uh, there was some information that came to Chris that uh, there was uh, some financial irregularities and improprieties going on that were the responsibility of Mindy Macias. Uh, Chris wrote a letter to the state auditor. At that point in time, it was decided uh, that Macias had not done anything to the level of fraud enough to merit firing. And Chris, with the chief justice, decided to suspend her. There was a, another state audit going on at the time that the top people there, the chief financial officer and the controller of the judiciary, refused to sign off on the audit because Ms. Macias was only being suspended and not fired. And their position was that any other employee of judicial would be fired. So it was then decided that they would go ahead and fire Macias, which they issued that termination letter in November of 2018. And Ms. Macias immediately uh, put herself on uh, family medical leave. And then in January, actually it was Christmas time, 2018, was when it was revealed that if they continued um, with this process to fire her, she would be filing this sexual discrimination lawsuit and here are all the details she was willing and prepared to reveal. Right. So before we get into that, what were the terms of her departure? Uh, Interestingly, uh, all the family medical leave that she had taken was reversed. All of her vacation time, paid time off that she needed to take was also reversed and she was handed over a nice check for $35,000. All disciplinary actions were to be removed from her personnel folder. Uh, And then she was to turn over this secret tape recording that she had made of a justice. And it turned out to be the Chief Justice Nancy Rice that she had secretly recorded. Um, So those were the terms of the deal that were signed in late March of uh, of 2019. And the next day, it was recommended she get the sole source contract of two and a half million dollars to do judicial training. I have to ask, what about this contract or I guess, how did you how did you begin investigating this? Yeah, I mean, it was a tip essentially about a contract given to a former employee who was supposed to be disciplined. So as that all kind of fell together, I started retrieving all the documents and and lining up all the dates and and things just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that you could go from wanting to fire somebody uh, to handing her a two and a half million dollar contract. You reported the existence of the contract in 2019. At that point, Chris Ryan canceled the contract and then resigned. What did he say at the time about why he quit? Uh, He didn't. Uh, What I was able to acquire was his resignation letter in which all he said was, you know, the normal grateful things that employees will say when they resign. I appreciated working here, look forward to additional opportunities, but there was no specific reason uh, provided. 
A state audit of the department came out a few months ago in December 2020. That audit was very critical of the contract. Just briefly, what did the audit say about the contract? They said there were, that a lot of the rules behind uh, the contract, the way it was um, uh, given, uh, some of the terms um, were very um, not well handled, not well regulated, that essentially here they are responsible for a $600 million budget. And this contract shows how some of their looseness of detail and and rule uh, can cause some really high level problems. So this month you reported a new allegation that Ryan has made about why the contract was awarded. And so this is that why that you were saying that it was so hard to figure out. There was a lot about the how. What is he saying about the why of what happened, why there was a contract? Well, when the auditor's report came out and it said there were a lot of problems with the contract that was put together, a lot of financial improprieties, what it did not do was assess or place the uh, decision-making blame of the contract equitably, uh, according to Chris, and made it look as if the entirety was his doing. And that's when Chris stepped up, got a hold of me and said, I'd like to talk quite bravely on the record. Uh, which he's never budged off of that. But anyways, and Chris made it very clear to me that that contract was the result of this memo. The memo was written by the human resources director at the time, Eric Brown. How did that come about? Ms. Macias took the leave of absence in the middle of November of 2018. And in Christmas time, 2018, Eric Brown reached out to Chris Ryan and said, I've been talking with Mindy she is prepared to file a sex discrimination lawsuit. If we continue and go through with the firing, she's going to sue and she's going to lay out a number of different things that she knows uh, about judges and discipline that never happened and things that you know, should have been disciplined and weren't or essentially covered up. Uh, Chris asked Eric to put it in writing. Let me see it. Write it. Put it down. Then he gets the memo from, from Eric Brown and so he gets this, and that's when Chris realizes this this needs to go higher. And so according to your reporting, there was a meeting of Chris Ryan, Eric Brown, Chief Justice Nathan Ben Coates, and the Chief Justice's counsel. Um, they called a meeting in which they sat down in the Chief Judge's chambers, and Eric Brown began to read from the memo. And it's a two-page memo, single-spaced, and when he gets roughly two-thirds of the way down, uh, that the chief justice, according to Chris Ryan, started waving his arms for Eric Brown to stop and said, I, I don't want to hear any more. Um, what can we do about this? Uh, that it's a bad idea for this to be to get out. And that's when Brown and Ryan suggested this contract might be a softer landing for her. And Ryan has become one of your key on-the-record sources for this. As you've reported the story, have any other of the folks in that meeting commented to you or confirmed their presence or talked about what was discussed? Uh, no, but, you know, sometimes you can get confirmations in the oddest sort of ways. When we originally asked for that memo under the open records policies of the Judicial Department, I was very specific about what the memo was for in what meeting and it was discussed and who was at that meeting. And in this particular case, um, my first request was denied because according to them, no such record existed. Well, it came to be that I had put down the wrong dates. And I said, oh, okay, let's fix that. And 
Then I got much more specific and said, this memo it was created by Eric Brown for this meeting with these four individuals at the meeting, and I named them. Clearly, if I was wrong on any of those portions, the first thing would have been is we have no re such record that exists. But that's when they denied us the documents and said, you can't have it for these reasons, essentially confirming that it existed. And those four individuals, uh, Chris is talking to me, of course, uh, Eric Brown uh, has not. Um, Andrew Rotman, the uh, current counsel for the uh, chief justice, has not. And I sent a personal email to Ben Coates back in December when I was reporting this out to get his comment. And that was passed to the public information officer who made it clear that the chief justice would not have a comment about privileged information and that no one else had the authority to uh, discuss it. And Chief Justice Coates retired at the end of 2020, correct? He did on December 31st because our Constitution restricts uh, judges at any level from serving past their 72nd birthday. This entire issue, it is highly contentious. The state judicial department vehemently denies any quid pro quo. What has the department said? Well, you just wrapped it up just like that. Um, they're, they're not at all, uh, they're saying that uh, there was no money paid to a blackmailer, uh, which I find that interesting seeing as that memo uh, never asserted a quid pro quo. It merely said, here's what is going to be revealed. The department said that the justices didn't know um, or had not seen the memo. Um, that doesn't address whether they knew about it. David, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. Oh, it's my pleasure, Avery. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. That's Denver Post reporter David Magoya. Chris Ryan also said he gave the attorney general's office a copy of the memo that outlined sexual harassment and misconduct allegations two years ago. The AG's office, which represents both the state auditor and the judicial department, said it can't comment, citing attorney-client privilege, and said its lawyers must keep client information confidential. When asked if the attorney general specifically knew about the memo, a spokesman said, we cannot confirm or deny any information. Up next, we'll explore one of Colorado's newest national treasures, but don't get too close. It is toxic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. Last season, we told stories of life's challenges, of recovery, and hope, and you listened. Really blown away by Back From Broken. Back From Broken inspired to... me to... Thank you very much for your messages of recovery and hope. They mean a lot to a parent like me. So this season on Back From Broken, more stories about hope. Happiness is just like right here. You know, it's in being alive. Find Back From Broken on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. There's a hole in the ground just west of downtown Steamboat Springs, and what's inside is now a national natural landmark recognized by the National Park Service last month. But don't plan to explore this place because it could be deadly. John Spear is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Colorado School of Mines. He's one of the few people to have spent time inside Sulphur Cave. John, thank you for joining us. Hello, Avery. Thank you for having me. Tell us why this cave earned the name Sulphur Cave. has to be the stink, the smell of sulfide. You can smell it on the ground all around it when you're approaching it. 
And it's even stronger when you get inside. So it smells like that strong rotten egg smell. But nobody really should be smelling it because there is a lack of oxygen and that could kill people who go inside, right? That is correct. So the OSHA standard for sulfide is about 10 parts per million. This cave is about 40 times that at 400 parts per million. And at about 80 times that at 800 parts per million, it's lethal. So since I know I am not likely to go inside, can you tell us what more about what it looks like in there? How big is this place? So this cave is amazing. It has 180 feet of surveyed passage, which is, you know, a good size. It has two small rooms that are about 20 feet below the surface. You can go into the first room, and the way, the way we went into it was we ventilated it first. We pumped air down into the cave to toss out the sulfide as well as the CO2 that builds up in there. And there are these two rooms down there, and you can crawl around down inside and see what's there. But the most remarkable thing that we found in there were three things. There are um, three cave features that form in this cave. One of them is a very unique and novel worm that we found down there. Another one are these vermiculations that are kind of on the surfaces and the walls and the ceiling of the cave. They kind of look like overcooked sweet potato french fries, kind of like that dark brown (laughs) color. And then the third thing that's amazing are uh, snotties, otherwise known as snotites. And when I say snotty, I'm talking about like human snot. And you have these snot drips that hang off the ceiling of the cave. And they're gooey and mucousy and kind of disgusting looking. And they're dripping acid, sulfuric acid, into the cave as H2SO4. I love that we can go from talking about vermiculations, which are, it's essentially a surface pattern, a very fancy word for a surface pattern, to snotites. But I want to know more about these worms. Tell me what's fascinating about them. So the worms were a completely unexpected find. Worms are a small animal, of course. And these worms are kind of a blood red brown color and they're living in the water and they're consuming microbes in the form of biofilms that are living on the surfaces of the rocks that the water's flowing over. And that water has a very high concentration of sulfide in it that's off-gassing into the cave, which gives us that, that smell. But the worms are able to detoxify the sulfide while living on trace amounts of oxygen that are also in the water. And so they have this remarkable physiology to do this. And when we found them, we were stunned by what we saw because of, you know, we didn't expect to find these blood red animals uh, in the cave, in the water. And it's kind of along the lines of the things that you find at a submarine hydrothermal vent in the middle of the ocean, just a completely unique kind of life, making a unique kind of living in a very unique place. You're an environmental microbiologist. So what are you learning about the nature of life when you study a place like this, especially when you see worms that you didn't expect to see? So you think you understand the earth and then you go looking and you say, wow, I didn't understand that at all. And this is one of those places where that happened. You know, I look for microbes in unique environments, particularly like subsurface environments, because we think about how things might be relevant to a place like Mars, where life could be in the subsurface of Mars. And that's normally what we do. We're looking for bacteria and archaea, you know, the small single-celled organisms of the world. And then you come down into a place like Sulfur Cave and you find this multicellular worm living there, probably in some sort of a symbiosis that we don't understand with the microbes themselves. You have explored many caves in your work. What about this place is really sticking out to you? It sounds like it looks unusual and it's taught you a lot about life. What else? For me, when I went into this place, the first time I was in this place was 14 years ago. And 
I still remember it to this day because it's almost like a sensory overload. It's visually arresting for all the things that you see, the vermiculations, the snotties, the smell is overwhelming. Uh, you're uh, crawling around down there, so you're physically touching and feeling it. And all those things really uh, leave an impression for how you learn about an environment. Because I think you're using all of your senses to learn that. And I try to take what I learn from places like this and apply it to elsewhere. Why do you think a place like Sulphur Cave deserves to be recognized as a national natural landmark if it's not a place that most people can see or experience? So to me, I think it's really great that this place has been recognized because not only does it mean we're recognizing uh, you know, a, a truly scenic place that we can all look at for like, for example, Garden of the Gods or Hanging Lake here in Colorado are both national natural landmarks. And so that's something you see and you appreciate the beauty of it. But here we are protecting something that we understand to be beautiful, but it's also dangerous. And I think it's great to have designation for an equally as unique place that you might not be able to access very easily, but we're setting it aside and recognize it for its specialty. The National Natural Landmark Program started, I think, around 1962 when Stuart Udall was Secretary of the Interior. And so, you know, we came up with the National Park Service in 1872 with Yellowstone National Park, and it took us 90 years to start thinking about how special lots of places can be. And this is one of them. Now that this place is getting more attention, are you worried more people will try to explore it? I am. Uh, there is a fence around it and there's a sign around it and we could potentially do something like put a gate over it. To my knowledge, there is not a gate over the entrance hole at this point. The land is owned by Parks and Recreation for the city of Steamboat Springs and they have people on site that are able to, you know, see who's going to go over by that hole and look down into it. And I think everybody understands that this place is dangerous. Uh, you really can't go into this environment without supplementary oxygen or blowing you know, air into that. And to do that, you would see people having to suit up or go in. And I think that there's a lot that still needs to be studied in this cave. And we'll probably be able to get back into it eventually, or at least I hope to, to do that. But in the meantime, I am worried about the danger of it. But I think that we can all work together to prevent that. For example, Parks and Rec at Steamboat Springs is able to kind of monitor access. So there are lots of questions about how to just manage a hole in the ground. It has been... <laughs> It has been more than eight years since you've been into this cave. Do you hope to go back soon? I hope to go back soon because I really want to um, do a full hit on the microbiology to better understand what's in these vermiculations, how they form, to better understand the snotties that are hanging from the ceiling. And it would really be fun to get into understanding if those worms are living by a symbiotic association with bacteria or archaea, for example, living in their guts. All those questions are things that I would like to go after and answer. So it would be great to get back in. I just need to find money. <laughs> How unusual is a cave like this on our planet? To our knowledge, it's very unusual. Um, this is one of the most unique caves in Colorado. It formed by sulfuric acid dissolution of travertine. There are other sulfuric acid formed caves in our country and around the world. But this one's very unique because of what's in it, how it formed, and where it is. And I think that um, you know, globally, there are probably a caves or two like this, but as far as one that has a, a worm that's living on sulfide and trace amounts of oxygen, this might be the only one, and that makes it extra special. John, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me.
John Spear is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Colorado School of Mines. He's one of the few people to have spent time inside Sulphur Cave, which is now a national natural landmark. Finally today, Nathaniel Rateliff is no stranger to late-night TV. Over the past few years, the Denver singer-songwriter has been a regular on Fallon, Colbert, and Kimmel. Well, over the weekend, he made his debut as the musical guest on another late-night staple. Live from New York, it's Saturday night! Rateliff joins an impressive lineup of musical guests for Saturday Night Live's 46th season, which has featured Bruce Springsteen, Foo Fighters, Dua Lipa. He treated viewers to two songs, including his latest called Redemption, about being freed from one's past. So in case you missed it, here's a little bit of that performance introduced by the episode's host, Regina King. Ladies and gentlemen, Nathaniel Rateliff. Denver's own Nathaniel Rateliff, accompanied by his band The Night Sweats for his SNL debut over the weekend. His latest song, Redemption, is featured in the new film Palmer, starring Justin Timberlake. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill with special thanks to Michael Elizabeth Sackis. This is CPR News.